You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship and God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Good morning, church. It's a privilege to be with you together right now. Please go ahead, take your Bible, and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. And as you do, consider with me the power of promise. The power of promise. When a person leaves the realm of speculation and ambition and hopes and dreams and enters into the place of promise, we hold that individual to a higher standard, to a greater obligation. Promise. It's the reason why there's a difference between teenage puppy love romance and the marriage that's lasted for 60 years because two people agreed to prove true on the promise till death do us part. Promise. Promises are so powerful, so weighty, so influential and impactful that on the opposite end, when we lose sight of promises we've made and promises that have been made to us, things go south very, very quickly. This is nowhere more seen than in our relationship to our promise-keeping God. Consider right now in your life how many times you have forgotten the promises of our God, the promises of our God that never fail, and you and I, we often forget and lose sight of them. And we soon quickly realize that there's a decay, there's a deterioration that comes into our spiritual life because we've lost sight of the promises of God. Perhaps the promise that we lose sight of the most is this, the promise of Christ's return. The fact that our Lord Jesus said in John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you so that where you are, where I am, there you'll be also. I'm coming to return for you. He promised to come. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, I am coming again with all of my army of angels to bring in my elect into my kingdom. He promised to return. Revelation chapter 22 The second last verse of the Bible, the Lord Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. And yet, brothers and sisters, is it not true that we often forget this promise? Maybe even right now you can see the evidence of the decay in your spiritual life because you've lost sight of this promise. Maybe even right now as I'm saying these words, are you finding your heart filled with anticipation towards the return of Jesus? Or are you sort of apathetic? Do you long for the return of your king? Or does the thought of Jesus coming actually fill you with a bit of anxiety instead of a sense of unrest? Because truthfully, if Jesus returned, that would put an end to all of your plans. Right now, if you find yourself in that place, know this, God has a word for you. That it's God's will this morning to once again ground us in this truth, the promise of Jesus' return. It's God's desire out of 2 Peter chapter 3 to remind us, to stir up our minds again, to focus on what matters most. It's God's desire for you and I this moment, right now, here in this room and at home, to once again be gripped by this reality, Jesus Christ 
has promised to return. So please, open your Bible, get there, 2 Peter chapter 3, it's where we're going to be, to bring you up to speed. 2 Peter, Peter's writing the second letter to the churches, and in this letter, he's making it clear, he knows he's about to die, he'll soon leave this world, and he wants the people of God to be centered on the truth of God, especially in the face of lies that were permeating that time, especially now, in the face of lies that you and I often face. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter is concerning himself with this question. Where is the promise of Christ's return? At that time, there were scoffers, people who mocked at the thought of Jesus returning, people who disbelieved, people who said, life has continued as it always has. Where is Jesus if he's going to return? That's the question he starts to answer starting from verse 4 in 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll be in verses 8 to 13. So look down at your Bible. I'll read verses 8 and 9. And that will bring us to our first point. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8, it says this. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. When it comes to being once again grounded in this truth, the promise of Christ's return, we must understand that Jesus will return according to his perfect timing. That's our first point. Jesus is coming. Because Jesus has promised to come, I must remember it's according to his perfect timing. His timing is perfect. Once again, Peter's concerning himself with battling this false notion that Jesus isn't coming. And so he's in this section going to answer the question, why hasn't Christ returned? In the verses prior to this one, if you look at your Bible, verse 8, Peter begins with the word, but. That's a conjunction. That's a powerful word. It's pointing us back to what we previously would have read in this passage. In verses 5 to 7 of 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter is answering the question, hasn't life continued as it always has? In that section, he says, no, absolutely not. In fact, there was a point in time in which the Lord wiped out the entire earth through the flood because of man's sinfulness. So no, life hasn't always continued as it always has. He answers that question, and now he's going to answer the question, where is Jesus then? Look at your Bible. It says, verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact. Don't miss this. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Peter says it's key for you to grasp this. You cannot miss this if you're going to understand the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as one day. Now don't get this mixed up. This isn't, this isn't as though he's speaking about dog years, right? We say one dog year equals seven human years. That's not what he's doing with God right now. Rather instead, Peter's pointing out this fact, that our God is timeless. Amen. That our God cannot be bound by seconds by minutes, by hours, by days, by a 365-day-year calendar. No, our God is infinite. He is immortal. He is eternal. To try and use the metrics of time to measure God is nonsensical. Peter makes it clear, no, our God, he's not late. No, 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 no. 
Time doesn't bind God. God binds time. He exists outside of time, independent of time. He is God, the Alpha and the Omega. Therefore, to speak of God as though he were late in the return of Jesus, it doesn't make any sense. That's what Peter wants to get across. Now he continues in verse 9. He says at the end of verse 8, the Lord is one day as a thousand years, a thousand years as one day. And then in verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. No, he's not slow. He's not behind schedule. He's not tardy. Then why hasn't Christ returned yet? Look at the answer. He's not slow, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I hope you see it in verse 9, clear as day. The reason why Christ hasn't come yet is because Christ isn't done saving his people. Plain and simple, the reason why Jesus right now, even as I'm speaking, has not yet returned is because Jesus is not done saving souls. Peter says the reason why the Lord hasn't returned is because he is patient towards you. Again, remember the original audience, Peter is speaking to the church. He's speaking to God's people. He says this, the reason why Jesus has not yet come is because you were not yet saved. Consider this, each and every person, each and every one of us, every member of the human race has rejected God, has sinned against the living God. God has called us to live for him, to admire and honor his glory. And rather than acknowledging God as king, we've lived for ourselves and we've sinned against this holy God. Because of our sin, each and every one of us deserve the payment and the reward, really, the consequence of death. That's why there is death, and that's why there is a second death. That's why there is a place of eternal punishment known as hell. God looks at our sin, and he does not accept our sin. And so this is the destiny for each and every person, a day coming down the road where we will all meet God and be judged by him. How can any of us escape this horrifying reality? There is hope, and that hope is the person of Jesus Christ. God loves us. God loved this world so much that he sends his son into the world to live a life of perfection, to live a life that would then be offered on the cross as the sacrifice for the sins of every person who would believe. So that just as we were singing, Jesus dies in the place of guilty sinners like you and I to pay for our sin, to pay for our consequence, to pay for our evil. Jesus dies, and on the third day, he rises again in victory, triumphant, proving that the payment was made in full, complete, once and for all, such that anyone who would believe in Jesus, and just as this verse says, reach repentance, will be saved. Amen. For anyone to be saved from their sin, they need to do this. They must believe in Jesus, and they must reach repentance, as our verse says, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Repentance, turning away from sin, walking down this pathway in life of sin no longer and turning towards God to live for God, to live in obedience to God. This is what repentance is. So consider right now, consider right now, maybe in this room right now, maybe at home, you, perhaps you've been saved for over 25 years, over 30 years. Do you remember the days before your salvation when you were a prideful atheist? 
when you were a self-centered pleasure seeker. Imagine if Jesus had come at that point. What would have been your destiny? It would have been destruction. And yet consider, God was not willing to send his son to return a second time because he wanted you. Maybe in this room right now, young people who have been saved, maybe for three years, for four years, through the youth ministry. But imagine if Jesus had returned while you were still living in rebellion to God. Imagine if Jesus had come while you were still obstinate and rejecting the love of God. What would have been your destiny? It would have been hell. And yet God was not willing for you to perish. This is why Jesus has not yet come. Because he was after you. He did not want to leave you out of his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, again, be reminded, be grounded in this truth, the promise of his coming. Jesus is coming at his perfect timing. But consider this, his patience towards you, his love towards you. That God had you in mind. He has you in mind as he sets the date of the return of Jesus. Amen. And consider then, even again as I'm speaking, the fact that Jesus has not yet come is this evidence. It's an evidence to this fact that Jesus is not done saving people. Perhaps even in this room right now, you're hearing these words, and as the first people who were receiving this message, some of them tempted to scoff. Do not scoff. Do not mock. Hear the words of God right now. He is calling for you to repent. Jesus has not come because he desires for you to be saved. Perhaps you at home. The reason why Jesus has not yet come is because he desires for you to be saved. Today is the day for you to reach repentance. Today is the day. Now is the time for you to believe to turn away from your sin and to follow Jesus. Do not say that you're too young, you're too old, that you're too busy, that you're too far gone. All of those excuses pale in the reality to this fact. Jesus hasn't come yet because he loves you and he's patient towards you and he's after you. The return of Jesus, the promise of his coming, it's centered on this reality, the fact that it's according to his perfect timing. God is being patient Waiting, calling people to himself, and yet understand this at the same time, he's coming. Our God is patient, but there's a day coming in which his patience will run out. It will reach completion. There's a day coming in which the Lord Jesus will return. Look what our passage says now in verse 10. But, again, that, that very important word, building on what Peter has just said in verses 8 and 9, now he says, but in contrast, the day of the Lord, that's Old Testament language, prophetic language seen in Isaiah and Joel and Amos all throughout the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, the promise of the return of Jesus, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Consider the activity of a thief. When a thief wants to come and rob you, a thief doesn't call you in the middle of the afternoon and say, hey, just want to let you know I'm planning to stop by your house at 3 a.m. this morning. going to take some of your stuff. All right, see you then. Bye. A thief doesn't do that. A thief comes without warning. A thief strikes suddenly. A thief comes with force, in and out, quickly. Peter says in a similar way, Jesus will come. But he won't come as though he were some sort of cat burglar, who steals your diamonds, and it's weeks later before you realize that you've been robbed. No, when Jesus comes the second time, he will come with a show of force, which none of us have ever seen. Look what it says in verse 10. He will come like a thief, 
And then the heavens will pass away, the sky, the cosmos, outer space, everything in the galaxy. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, the constellations, everything will melt. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You see, at the coming of Jesus, it will be a day unlike any other. It will be a time unlike any other. The Lord Jesus will come and he will expose everything that's ever been done in your life and in my life. He will expose everything and he will judge each and every person. Are you ready for that day? Are you prepared for the day, the promise of his coming? Our God is patient and yet he will come. Are you ready for that day in which you will be judged? Everything you've done, everything you've lived for, he will come and he'll evaluate each and every one of us. In the Old Testament, when speaking of the day of the Lord, the prophets use words such as doom, such as fury, such as wrath, such as gloom. It's a terrifying day for those who do not know Jesus, for those who have not reached repentance. And yet again, now is the time for you to be saved. On the screen for you right now, Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul speaking to people who were tempted to take for granted the patience of God. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, the Apostle Paul says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Don't take for granted the patience of God. Don't take for granted the mercy and the grace of God that you are experiencing right now. Do not take for granted his grace and his love towards you. Verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul says it's as though each and every moment you are offered the opportunity to come to Christ and you reject that. It's as though you're putting away in your eternal bank account. It's as though you're making deposits of wrath. And it's growing with compound interest each and every day, each and every second. So that on the day of the Lord's return, it will be all poured out on you. Is that what you want? Do you realize what you are doing? God calls you to reach repentance today. It goes on to say in verse 6, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. For you, Christ follower, the day of the Lord will not be a fearful day, a day of trembling, but it will be a day of rejoicing because you will receive your reward, eternal life. He will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. What a glorious day, the promise of his coming. And yet, see what else it says. Verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Consider again, what are you living for? Who are you living for? You must live for Jesus. You must believe. You must trust in Jesus. You must reach repentance. Our God, he's coming according to his timing, according to his patient timing. He's coming. It will be a time of judgment when he comes, but ultimately it will be according to his perfect and glorious timing, grounded in the promise of his coming. 
Now we've seen that Peter has explained to us why hasn't Christ yet returned. Now, as we continue on in our passage, Peter will now explain to us, for those of us who know Jesus, how then are we to live as we await the coming of our Savior? How are we to live? How are we to conduct our lives? Look at verse 11. That will bring us to our second point. Since, again, one of those special words, building the argument. Peter building the argument of what he's saying in 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, all these things, the whole galaxy is going to melt. It will not last. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Peter's asking a rhetorical question that he's going to answer in the very same sentence. He says, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? What sort of people ought we to be? We ought to be people who live holy and godly lives. This brings us to our second point. Because Jesus has promised to come, I must remember my calling is holiness. My calling is godliness. Because Jesus has promised to return, grounded in this promise, the coming of Jesus, I must live a holy and godly life. It is my calling. Peter uses these two words, commonly used words, holding such weight. We are to live in lives of holiness, Holiness brings to mind the idea of separation from that which is unclean and dedication to that which is clean and pure. It's the idea of not being common, but being sacred. It's the idea of living in obedience to God and separating yourself from that which is ungodly, unholy. Holiness. And then Peter uses the word godliness. Godliness brings to mind the idea of character. It's the idea that we as Christians are to be growing in a Christ-like character, that we're supposed to be abounding in the fruit of the Spirit, that we're to be giving up self-centered qualities and growing in Christ-like qualities. Peter says to us, this is your calling. Church, this is our calling. This is our aim. Lives of holiness, lives of godliness, lives that are centered on eternity, lives that live in light of eternity. Lives that look more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet understand that this is not a calling to ritualism or moralism. This is not a calling for you to try harder, to do more, to be more. But rather, it's a calling to live out what you actually already are. Do you understand that as the Lord Jesus saved us, as he took upon himself our sin, he likewise gave us His righteousness. This is why it could say in 2 Peter that we actually have at our disposal God's divine nature with us and within us in order to now live out holy and godly lives. This is why Peter would say elsewhere that you, as the people of God, are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. That this is why throughout the the New Testament, God's word calls us believers, saints, holy people. Sometimes you don't feel like it, but know this. This is your identity, brothers and sisters. This is who you are. You are holy in Jesus Christ. Therefore, live it out. Therefore, pursue this. Pursue what God has already made you. Lives of holiness. Lives of godliness. Understand the eternal worth and the eternal value of living lives of holiness and godliness. Remember what Peter is saying in this verse, verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. All these things. Last I checked, all means all. There's nothing excluded from that all. Everything. 
Like whatever iPhone you have, iPhone 12, X, Y, Z, it's going to melt. Like whatever car you have, it's going to burn, it's going to melt, it's not going to last. Our houses, whatever house you have, some of you are like, man, my house needs so many renovations, let it burn. It's going to burn. It's going to dissolve. It's going to melt. Know this, everything, everything that you can see and experience with your five senses, it's temporal. It won't last. And yet know the eternal worth and the eternal value of godliness and holiness. Paul could say to Peter, to, Paul could say to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, he would say to him, train yourself, young man, Timothy, he says, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way because it, ha- it has promise for this present life and for the life to come. Here what Paul says to Timothy, he says to him, Timothy, yeah, it's not a bad thing for you to be physically fit, to live a healthy and active lifestyle. But just know this, whatever muscles you gain, it won't last. It won't last. But young man, pursue instead godliness because godliness holds promise. It holds blessing now in this life and likewise in the life to come. That God will bless the godly life here and now and he will bless that same godly life in eternity with heavenly rewards. Pursue godliness. Brothers and sisters, pursue godliness. It is of eternal consequence. And likewise, holiness. Holiness, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, without holiness, no one will see God. Without holiness, without holiness, no one will see God. How could the author of Hebrews say that? Such a forceful and strong statement. Well, because... Holiness is the evidence of what we truly are. In the same way, all dogs bark, all ducks quack, all giraffes are really tall, is the same way Christians are holy. Christians are holy because Christ has shared his very holiness with us. Therefore, if we truly are believers, we will live out lives of holiness. It is the natural progression. It is the natural consequence. Holiness is not an option. Therefore, brothers and sisters, pursue holiness. Let this be the new guide and gauge of what you do and pursue in your life. A life of holiness. A life of godliness. Right now, God's word is asking you this morning, are you taking your personal holiness and godliness seriously. Right now, examine your own life. Right now in this season, examine your own life. Are you taking your personal holiness seriously before the Lord? Are you taking your personal godliness seriously before God? Or are you seeing in your life right now even the evidence of the decay and the decline and the deterioration that comes into your life because you've forgotten, because you've lost focus on the promise of his coming? You see, little concern for holiness and godliness shows little concern for the coming of Christ. I'll say it again. Little concern for holiness and godliness in your life shows that you have little concern for the return of the Lord Jesus. Right now, may this be a moment of conviction, but a moment of grace. Because God is calling us each, each of us, myself included. He's calling each and every one of us, again, to realign our vision, to focus on what matters most, to focus on the promise of his coming. He calls us to a life of holiness. 
Let this be a day in which we say, God, forgive us for compromising. No longer. I don't want to be any longer conformed to this world, but I want to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. I want to live in conformity to Christ. I want to live for Jesus. I want to pursue holiness and godliness because Jesus has promised to return. Now, in your life, let this be the moment moving forward, today moving forward. Let this be the new guide for your life. Whatever opportunities you are faced with, ask yourself the question, well, whatever it is that is before me, will it help to motivate and encourage my holiness and godliness? Or will it serve to detract from my holiness and godliness? Whatever opportunity, whatever it is, whatever you're about to watch on Netflix, whatever you're about to do at home with your family, whatever you're about to do in private, ask yourself this question is what I'm about to do, what I'm about to give myself to. Will this help to promote my holiness and godliness in my life? in the life of the church, or will it serve to detract from my personal holiness and from the holiness and godliness of my brothers and sisters? See here, this is what God desires for us, lives of holiness, lives of godliness, lives that are centered on the promise of Christ's return. Now Peter, in the last two verses of our passage, will now define for us and show us Mark's and characteristics of the holy and godly life that is pursuing the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first mark is this. It's a holy anticipation. A holy anticipation. See what Peter says now in description of the holy and godly life in verse 12. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Peter says the holy life The godly life is one that is waiting for the coming of the day of God, a holy anticipation. Peter says for us as believers, we are to be as the wise virgins, not the foolish virgins, as Jesus explained in Matthew chapter 25. Those who are ready, those who are expectant, not who are sleeping and unaware, who are caught off guard when when the bridegroom returns, but rather those who are ready, prepared, looking towards the day of the Lord. Peter says we are to be waiting and anxiously desiring the coming of the Lord. May this be us, waiting for the day of the Lord, a holy anticipation. And next, he's going to describe for us a second characteristic of the holy life, the one that is centered on the promise of his coming, a holy anticipation, and likewise, a holy urgency. See that sentence again. Look at your Bible, verse 12. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. You have to love God's word, because right there in that one sentence, we see This amazing dual reality, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility that on one end we know God has sovereignly as the king of the universe, he is determined and set the day on which the Lord Jesus will return, waiting for the day of the Lord. And on the opposite end, on the other end, on the other spectrum, he says, hastening the coming of the day of God, that you and I, under the sovereignty of God, have a part to play in the return of Jesus. Get that. That you and I, believer, we have a part to play, that we can hasten, we can quicken the day of the Lord's return. How can that be? How can you and I play a part in the return of Jesus Christ? Two ways. First of all, by praying thy kingdom come. Praying thy kingdom come. The Lord Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6. After that prayer God, hallowed be your name. Your name be honored. Your name be glorified. The second prayer the Lord Jesus taught us is to pray, thy kingdom come. 
Brothers and sisters, align your prayer life with the prayer life of Jesus, with the prayer agenda of Jesus. Let this be central to your prayers, pleading and saying, God, come. Because what is the prayer for the kingdom to come than a prayer for the king to return? The kingdom comes when the king returns. So pray your kingdom come because you're praying, Jesus, return. Bring your kingdom. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Pray thy kingdom come. And secondly, preach the gospel of the kingdom. Pray your kingdom come and preach the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, verse 9 of this passage, the reason why Jesus has not yet returned is because he's patient towards us. Because he still sees people that he loves, that he desires to enter his kingdom. And how are people saved? Romans 10, when they hear the message of the gospel. And how will they hear the message of the gospel unless messengers go and tell the good news? Not only in pulpits, but in your home. Not only in your home, but at your workplace, in your neighborhood, among your friends, online, wherever you are. Brothers and sisters, we carry the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's that very news that will bring the return of the Lord. Consider right now, perhaps even the person that comes to your mind as you're sitting here. Even at home, the person that you think to yourself, they'll never come to faith. My mother, who's so hard-hearted, no, she'll never come to faith. No, don't lose hope. Don't lose heart. No. Perhaps that very same individual, that hard-hearted son of yours that you're like, man, I just so long for them to be saved. Don't give up. Don't give up praying. Don't give up preaching to them in love. Who knows if that's the very same person that the Lord is waiting on to be saved in order for him to return. Pray thy kingdom come and preach the gospel of the kingdom and you will join with a holy urgency, a holy anticipation, and now a holy urgency in bringing about the return of the Lord. Lives of holiness, lives of godliness, all centered on this, the promise of his coming. Peter keeps going, leading us to our last characteristic of the holy and godly life centered on the promise of his coming. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. I hope you see, Peter really wants us to get this. Like, everything is not going to last. It's going to melt. It's going to burn. Everything will be set on fire and dissolved. Look at your Bible. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, verse 13, but, again, that very special word, but, in contrast, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, a holy anticipation, a holy urgency, and now the Christian, we, you and I, we look towards a holy destination, a holy destination. Peter says to us, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Understand this, that when Jesus returns, he will come and he will set up a new heavens, a new earth, a renewed world. One where righteousness dwells, where goodness will reign, where peace and love will be the rule of the land, where justice and freedom and equity will be the law of the land, where fairness and honor will be the norm. And yet stop and consider the implication of what Peter's saying right now. It's when Jesus comes that all of this will be established, the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. And yet, why does that have to be the case? Why does the Lord have to come and set up a world, a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells? It's because the present earth and this present heavens is not a realm of righteousness. 
That this world as it is right now is not a place of goodness, of peace, of joy, of justice. But rather these heavens and this earth, it is a place of unrighteousness, a place of evil, a place of exploitation. One filled with pain, suffering, disaster, disease, death. A world that has been tainted and corrupted by sin. A world that's filled with a humanity that has been tainted and corrupted by sin. And it's for this reason why this world has this destiny to look forward to, to be consumed with fire. And the very inhabitants of this world, people who refuse to obey God, this is why the only destiny awaiting those who refuse to reach repentance is a destiny of fire. Brothers and sisters, this is the reason why you cannot place your hope in this life. This is the reason why you cannot look to this world to fulfill your hopes and your deepest desires. I say to you respectfully this morning, if your greatest hope and your greatest desire is that there will come a vaccine that will totally eradicate COVID-19 and life will go back to normal as usual, you will be disappointed. Because one day down the line, there will come a new disease, there will come a new sickness, there will come a new plague. Because such has been the course of history from the very day Adam and, sin, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And it will be that way until the Lord returns. If your greatest hope is that nations will lay down their arms and join together, linking hands in peace, I say to you again respectfully, you will be sorely disappointed. Because there will always be tyrants. There will always be dictators who rise up to oppress the very people they were promised and sworn to protect. If your greatest hope is that in this life, social reform and social activism and political upheaval will bring about harmony between different ethnicities and different cultures, I say again, you'll be disappointed. Because within the heart of man is not love towards his fellow man, but is hatred, distrust, selfishness. Brothers and sisters, don't look to this life. For your hope. Do not look to this world for your hope. Do not look to this world for your hope. Rather look to this reality, the promise of the coming of our God, the promise of Jesus' return, this God who will come and bring about a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Brothers and sisters, this world, it is destined for destruction. But First Thessalonians chapter 5, you and I, we are not destined for destruction. We are destined to reach eternal life. God has set his love upon us believers. Therefore, do not set your hope in this life. Set your hope on the life to come. Do not set your hope in this world, but rather look to the great, the great hope of the return of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we close, look in your Bible, look on the screen. The new heavens and the new earth. Revelation chapter 21. See here the description of what awaits us, what we look forward to, this reality. Revelation chapter 21. The new heavens and the new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. He will dwell with us, church. He will dwell with us there in the new heavens and the new earth. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This is our hope. Do you desire a place without tears? A place without mourning, a place without death, a place without sorrow, a place without suffering. Then what you desire is the new heavens and the new earth, and what you truly long for is the return of the king. Brothers and sisters, set your eyes on this reality. Our king is coming. The Lord is coming. For those of you who are still even now tempted to scoff, tempted to disbelieve the word of God, don't you see everything you truly desire is found in this kingdom? The reason why the kingdom of God will be a place of peace is because the God of peace will be with his people there. The reason why the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth, will be a place of joy is because the God of joy will be with his people there. The reason why the kingdom of God will be a place without evil, without injustice, is because the God of justice, the God of righteousness, will be with us there. Don't you see what you truly desire is the kingdom of God and who you truly need is the God of the kingdom. Understand this. You cannot have entrance into the kingdom of God unless you first bow your knee to the king. You must reach repentance. Today, now, again, is the moment, the hour. You must reach repentance. This is your only hope. And if you should reach repentance, if you should believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, know this, you will no longer have to look with dread to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But rather, with the people of God, you can join in rejoicing at this glorious hope, this amazing reality, the promise of his coming. You can look forward to this day, this day in which the Lord will return, and we will be brought up and caught up with him in the sky. We will be brought into the heavens, the new heavens and the new earth. The Lord, he will return for his people. Brothers and sisters, know this, the promise of his coming. The Lord Jesus, he says, Revelation chapter 22, he says this, Behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. And John, in response, writing the last few verses of the Bible, he says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen, church? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we are amazed at this reality. We're humbled by this truth that you would so give yourself for sinful people, for people who don't deserve your love, who don't deserve your care, for people who have rejected you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. God, again, refocus our minds. Set our eyes on what matters most, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have promised to return And you will fulfill your promise. Thank you so much for your love and your patience. That even now, you're rescuing souls all around the world. You are doing your work. The gospel is advancing. Your church is advancing. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. God, we give you glory. And now we ask, as we would sing in response to your word, prepare us. Enable us. Help us to love you and help us to rejoice in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.